Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. Today's guest is Martin Shoemaker. I originally met Martin in 2015 when he came out to Hollywood as a winner in Writers of the Future, Volume 31, with his story, Unrefined. He has published four novels since his win, and we are here to talk about his upcoming fifth novel in his podcast. He is a programmer who writes on the side, or maybe it's the other way around. He told stories to imaginary friends and learned to type on his brother's manual typewriter, even though he couldn't reach the keys. He couldn't imagine any career but writing fiction. Until his algebra teacher said, this is a program, you should write one of these. Fast forward 30 years of programming, writing, and teaching, he was named an MVP by Microsoft for his work with the developer community. He wrote fiction, but he gave up on submitting until his brother-in-law read a chapter and said, that's not a chapter, that's a story, send it in. It won second place in the Bain Memorial Writing Contest and earned him lunch with Buzz Aldrin. Programming never did that. Welcome, Martin. Thank you, John. I am glad to be here as always. Yeah, I'm very excited about this particular interview we're going to do because we, we're going to talk about a book that you got coming out pretty soon and um, something that you've you've uh, are working with now, which is something that's happening more and more on Kickstarter. We'll get to that in a moment. But um, to start with, you know, I read your book, Ula, and you're known as a hard SF writer. You write hard science fiction, write in your own universe. I'd like to also know and discuss how you transition to this form of historical fiction, science fiction, in an established universe. That's an interesting question because, to my mind, it's all the same process. I am still approaching this historical science fiction with a hard science fiction point of view. There, there are two aspects to me of what goes into hard science fiction. Right. One is good science, except where you need to change it for the sake of the story, because if you're just doing current technology, it sort of loses the science fiction. Yep. But the other is what I consider ruthless consistency. Whatever the rules of your universe are, you live with them. You are stuck with them. Your story comes out of them. Writers of Future Judge Larry Niven, I consider to be the absolute master of this, and I try to take my lessons from Larry that I can change the rules, but when I do, those rules are going to be the rules of the story. So I'm just changing the rules a little bit to say that the Martians invaded in 1907, but everything else we knew scientifically up to that point is what the actual science was. I get it. So then it's not a change of, of, um, of procedure, at least for yourself. And I've got a few more questions that are going to uh, branch off from this. But it is somebody else's world or universe. Did, did you take it and make it your own? Or how did you deal with that? Because before, it's always been Martin's creation from the get-go. And this one here is H.G. Wells that you've now taking a different spin on, or so it might seem. Um, what's interesting is the only thing I changed from my perspective is that Wills's character in the book drew conclusions of what the Martians' motivations and thinking were 
Uh-huh. And other than that, I keep everything the same, but his conclusions were wrong. There is not a thing that I reference in here that did not actually appear in his text, but with different motivations behind it and little plot holes or little complications that never came up when Wells was writing the story, such as in his own story, in his own words, the humans attacked first. It wasn't the most effectual of attacks, but the humans attacked first. Right. So there was some reason for the confusion on both sides from there. Right. So So then, go ahead. So so going back to the ruthless consistency, Wells's world, Wells's words were the rules I had to start within, and then find what were the loopholes and what were the changes I could ring on that. Okay. So now. Was Wells actually writing more of a satire on present-day London or or England? I don't know if it was satire per se, but it was at least on the edge of satirical because that he he was known for his social satire. But there's right. a letter that he wrote to a friend that's been reproduced a few times where he basically explained that he just wanted to have fun blowing up his neighborhood with a bunch of Martians and how he killed off all of his neighbors <laughs> in creative, fun ways. And all right. So. In fact, if you look at the story, something that I don't ever hear commented upon, there is exactly one named character in the whole story. Everyone else is the prisoner, the pharmacist, or the chemist, the, the brigadier, there's not a single person there that is referred to by name except for one character that his brother meets in London. And it's not Eugene. And it's not Eugene. <laughs> okay, good. We'll get to that a bit later so I don't leave that total mystery there. Yeah, because I know Wells was definitely noted for his satire and based on the fact that it just took place in his, like you said, his neighborhood, and that's where all the destruction occurred. If there was some something he was trying to communicate via the science fiction about the uh, some social commentary of that day and age. There, there was some. Evidently not. There was some, and but he doesn't actually touch on it in the story. He mentions it elsewhere in his terms of his inspirations for the story. Yeah. He was of the generation that highly disapproved of some of the things that the British Empire was doing in some of the colonies and, and the Boer War, the Crimean War, he was of the generation that thought, you are going into where these people are living their peaceful lives and you are disrupting everything, killing people right and left. So there was a little of an element of, how would you like it if it happened to you? Yeah, that's what I was wondering, if it was that type of a thing where he was, you know, basically that, the Martians invading were like the the British when they take over the various quote unquote protectorships or their usurpation of of territory. If that was what he was trying to allude to, and, and he never, I think, gets close to that in the text. But in his own commentary elsewhere, he's pretty pretty clear on that. Yeah. All right. Anyways, that pretty much answers then. So. Did you have? Did you feel any trepidation going into writing in this universe, or did you feel totally like, okay, I got this one? Um, first, I had in terms of of the simple the copyright issues. I knew I had this one. 
I have been trained right. by my writers of the future, instructors, and several others on how copyright law works. And I was absolutely clear that this is a book that's in public domain. So in a sense, I have liberty to do what I want with it. As far as trepidation about, can I do this? Um, I may suffer from a flaw as a writer, but I think it has served me well so far, which is I don't believe there's a story I can't tell. It's a matter of how much am I going right. to have to work at it to figure out what the story is. But one of the lessons out of Writers of the Future is sit down and write. The only way to know if you can write it, the only way to write it, is to just sit down and do it. Do your research, do your thinking, and then just do it. Don't question and I, I happen to have plenty of ego for that. <laughs> so on this, on the book itself now, there's also, you have a, a really cool, at the end of the book, about, about this story where you give a little bit of the background of it. So you did a lot of research. You took a story which Wells told in his neighborhood, about his neighborhood, and you transitioned it. You moved it across the, the, the planet to from... Uh, the United Kingdom to uh, America and put it into early 20th century yep. America from your from your own area. And then you did a lot of research. And it was, it was fascinating what you were able to do. So tell me a little bit about that, because that was, that was pretty cool. Well, the research ran in multiple tracks as I was looking at different things. I settled on Michigan simply because I felt like if Wells can destroy his neighborhood, I can destroy mine. Although, as you know, I didn't end up destroying anything. But I, I used right. my neighborhood only more than half a century before I was born. So some of the research for that was my dad and my brother had a lot of local history books, um, had maps of the area because we're a family that loves maps. So that was part of it. And then a big part of it was going online, searching things for the internet. The internet is, is so, so fantastic of a tool these days, but some things still aren't there. So some of it was going to the local libraries, downtown Grand Rapids Library, going through and reading the actual old newspapers of the day and reading the uh, historical records of, of births and deaths and so on. Uh, the newspapers of the day was a fascinating discovery for me they had not invented the story block. They had invented columns in a newspaper, but when you started a story, it was in the upper left corner of page one, and it went down the column until the end of that story. And then the next story started and wrapped up to the next column and down, and you might have stories wrapping to three or four columns, but there's no concept of a block of sub-columns that all went together in one story. So I had to learn a whole new way to read the newspaper. <laughs> but I went back and read old, old school. Yeah. Yes. So I went back and read newspaper stories from the time period. Some of my earliest research actually dis I discovered the Wellesian Society, which is a group of Wells scholars who published their own I think it's an annual journal, it might be a quarterly journal, but Journal of Wellesian Studies and I found two scholars who were astronomers and went against the, the grain entirely in terms of what people think in terms of when War of the Worlds happened, because Wells is ambiguous in that. 
The story was published, I believe it was 1896. His own text says that this happened early in the 20th century, and yet virtually all scholars have said, no, no, this clearly happened in 1897 to 1898, which is late in the 19th, not early in the 20th. These two scholars had actually studied the astronomy of the events that Wells had said in the story. These happened at these times, and they did the calculations of that and said, this combination of astronomical events could only happen in June of 1907. And I said, well, it's going against the grain, so it's going to make my story different already. And it's more convenient for me to have a 20th century story, to have things a little more advanced in terms of the development of the area. So I said, I will go with that. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. After that, I did a lot of researching on local history and just reading stories from people from the time. And that's how I discovered the Hardy family and had my mind blown and said, these are my characters. Well, Eugene is my character. Right. Eugene's a cool dude. It's an interesting character that's taking me some time to get into his head because he is so different from me, but he has the background that I know, the territory that I know from, from dad's old stories and from old school records and so on. Yeah, he was, from what you said in the, uh, at least in the, uh, the back of the explaining the, the story, how you came upon it, he was the first black graduate of high school or college high school. in that area? In, in the state of Michigan. High school. And his father was the first black elected official in the state of Michigan from the township, not my township, but basically the township across the street from where I grew up. And this was a story I had never heard, although it is known to local historians when I go and do a little digging. Yeah, that's, I mean, that was fascinating. And I was really amazed too how you totally set your story in that time period with the whole rural America, the whole, you know, the Sabbath, you know, depending on which religion you are, when the Sabbath began and when it ended and, and how important it was and the racial strictures that were still in place, even though less stringent than in the South, very much so still in, in the North. It was, you know, building a story around that and that setting. And I was really impressed with that too, that that gave it a lot more of the authenticity, you know, which is what Wells did too. You know, he had, it was so realistic that people really fell for it when Orson Welles did his broadcast in uh, 1911 or whenever that was. You have, you're grounded so much into the realism of that time period that you find stuff, okay, now where is that line dividing between what actually happened and what he's fictionalizing? Mm -hmm. And I hewed as closely as my research would allow to the reality, um, which is why Eugene in my story is not just any random person from the area. He is a devout Seventh-day Adventist because, in fact, his family was known for that. Um, as I understood the story from the sources I read, when Ellen White was traveling between Battle Creek, which was the main headquarters of the SDA church, and Grand Rapids for some sort of mission event. This was back in the days when you didn't have Motel 6 on every corner. 
essentially, if you were a traveler in the winter, you might knock on a door and say, could we stay with you? And if the people are friendly and welcoming to travelers, you do. And she and her party knocked on the Hardy's door on the way to Grand Rapids and spent the night there and got to know them. Uh, for those of you who are not that versed in Seventh-day Adventist history, Ellen White was one of the founders of the church and was one of the most influential writers of the church that she wrote guides to the scriptures that, that would help people say, if I want to understand and get help on this topic, they would first turn to White where she would discuss what the scriptures had to say, and then she would point to the relevant passages. So she was a highly significant person in the founding of the church and met the Hardys and converted them. So that became, again, with ruthless consistency, that to me was an indelible part of Eugene's character that he sure. needed to be faithful to the tenets of that church as best I could understand them and confirm them with modern Seventh-day Adventists, which, of course, not quite the same as 1907, but they know their history better than I do. Correct. Now, you also talk about this, um, this road, the Plank Road. Yep. So that's, that's a legitimate thing, too, that was, that was built in— what was, how did that come well, to be? And, and this was the really ironic thing is growing up, I would hear histories of the Plank Road. There was a little uh, petting zoo called the Plank Road Farm south of me and so on. I didn't know until I started researching this book that I grew up on the Plank Road. I just didn't know it because, of course, by, by the time I grew up, the planks were long gone. Essentially, there was at a time where it was not yet cost-effective in the minds of the railroad companies to put down railroad lines. So all traffic was still over roads, but they came up with this idea of essentially paving roads with wooden planks because Michigan had one heck of a lot of lumber at that time. Right. And so in fact, if you go through and look at old maps, most of the highways in the state today are very close to what, where plank roads were back in the day. And this was, in fact, a Midwestern phenomenon in nearby states as well, that we, we would pave with planks, which was really good when they went in, but became really more and more degraded over time. There's um, actually a, a famous interview with Mark Twain, where he came to visit for some speaking engagement in Michigan and talked about these roads practically knocking his teeth out. And then finally, when the railroad started coming in, all of a sudden, all the work and money they went in to maintain these planks because it was actual toll roads that when you were going on there, you would have to pay a toll to maintain the planks. All of a sudden, who's going to pay the toll when you can just put your stuff on the railroad and get it there faster and not have to deal with that? And the plank roads died relatively overnight. Yeah, I'd never heard of the plank roads. That's why I was fascinated when... You actually went in explaining the whole history. Like, I had no idea, never even conceived of that. And, and to discover that the plank roads were right in front of my house. And in fact, it's possible that I have in my lifetime seen some of the old planks repurposed as farm fences and never knew it. Right. So now you, you wrote this, this book, Ula, 
Actually, it's Martian Song Book One. So you're, you're envisioning, obviously, a series now. This is the beginning of a series. So what's, what's the anticipated timeline now on this so that people listening to this will know when they're going to be able to actually uh, download or, and or uh, purchase the book? Well, I am doing it through Kickstarter to try to reach as many people as possible and to cover incidental costs, although the book is essentially done, the cover is essentially done, there's always incidental costs. But I am launching a Kickstarter. Well, by the time this airs, I will have launched a Kickstarter because I'm launching right. on June uh, June 2nd, and it's going to run three weeks, so that's through June 21st. After the Kickstarter is done, I will be sending out the eBooks as soon as possible, and then I will be making the print books available as downloads from Amazon or orders from Amazon or other publishers. I haven't settled on my final publisher yet, but right now I'm looking at Amazon just because I have the experience for that. And so once those are available and I will be distributing to the backers, they'll also be available for people to buy through Amazon or whichever online outlooks I end up with for this eventually. Okay, so that now leads to the next question. So you talk about this um, Kickstarter I guess you got a strategy for this. So what is this Kickstarter strategy that you're that you're operating on? Where did it come from and how does it tie in with publishing a book? And do you have to already have a following or can you start from scratch as an author and use a Kickstarter to be able to get yourself going? Just I'm this is a brand new thing talking about. I mean, the last thing I heard about publishing Kickstarters, I've seen Kevin Anderson has been doing that. And then obviously Brandon Sanderson just uh set the galactic record not that long ago. So Kickstarter seems to have a much more of a of a role into publishing these days. So explain that a bit. So people listening as well, the aspiring writers, and I'm assuming it's gonna work for other professions as well how that works and how that ties in. Well, first, the bad news is for a new author with no following, it's probably going to fail. Now, I'm not saying for everyone. If you can hustle, it can work. Um, right. If, if you are a natural salesman like our friend Wolf Moon, Wolf Moon is is the proverbial sell, uh, sell ice cubes to Eskimos. Wolf is a salesman where I would never be. Right. He's also got enough of following that it does, that he'd be able to do it without that anyway, and I hope he keeps this in mind at some point. You do need some way of reaching an initial audience for the strategy, which I am building on, which was a course taught by Dean Wesley Smith, another of the contest judges, based off of an ebook written by, I forget the gentleman's name, but it's a, a prominent Kickstarter backer and manager who is a friend of Dean's, and he wrote an ebook on best practices for Kickstarter, and Dean said, hey, can I use this as the basis of an online course, and we'll split the fees, and, and everybody will win because we want to spread the word of this. So they did it, and this is how Dean does a lot of his courses. They did it for paying audiences first, where paying audiences could actually come in, ask questions, and so on, but it's now available through Dean's uh, WMG Publishing teaching site for free for anybody. You don't get to ask questions, but you get all of the content, and it's right there. And the big elements of the strategy can be broken down into 
do a professional job, one, professional job of your presentation so that people are going to know that you are serious and you are taking this Presentation seriously. meaning the Kickstarter presentation. Yes. You're talking about the, the, the Kickstarter presentation. Okay, good. And, and, and if, you, if you don't feel confident doing a professional job on that, polish it until you are confident because if you fail on that, you'll fail on everything else. Two is to aim to fund early. And so if you try for Brandon's $42 million, you're not going to get it and you're not going to fund early. Brandon didn't aim for $42 million. I forget what his target was. I think it was a million. It was was just a million. Yeah. Just, but yeah. And he hit that. Well, he had the the background and experience of the following to pull it off. But a big key of that was he hit that the first day. He hit that, I believe, in the first hour. Right. He did. And this is part of what Dean's strategy talks about is if you hit your goals, the Kickstarter algorithms like your project and start promoting it. So hitting your goals is a way of hitting more goals, hitting more money, hitting more more readers, because Kickstarter starts saying, this is a successful project, you'll want to hear about it. And so the strategy basically at that point comes down to ask for less and you probably get more. If you ask for something that's really achievable, then the chances are you will go beyond it. Whereas if you ask for something that you're not sure if you can hit that or not, then you could very well find yourself in the last days of your campaign still not knowing the answer to that question. And for those who don't know how Kickstarter works, if you don't hit your initial goal, the project is canceled. You get none of your funds. Nobody gets anything. And you walk away poorer but wiser. So... Dean's advice is aim lower and have the potential to go higher instead of aiming high. Okay, that makes sense. And then, now you've written the book, you've had it copy edited, you've had it proofread, you've had it, everything's done on it, so, or is that not true? It's all ready to go. All right, so why do you need this extra money? Because I don't want money, I want readers. And it will take me some money to get readers. It will take me some money to get the actual copies printed and out to readers. But there's this is a bit, as, as you can tell, because of the way I wrote it, right where I lived and grew up, this is a passion project. Right. This is not just for me a, gee, I want to sell books project. It is, gee, I want people to read this because it matters to me. And I will be blunt, and I hope this doesn't scare away any readers. I've had professional editors whom I respect tell me no one is interested in more War of the World stories. I have even had my agent say, I don't think I can sell that to anyone. And I am saying, by putting this out there to Kickstarter, I believe people want this. And I'm going to try to prove it by giving them a chance to order it through Kickstarter, which will, if I hit the goals, will prove to me that they were wrong. Right. I mean, the thing that was really different about your book from War of the Worlds is the aliens were so impersonal. It was 
I didn't have a feel for them. Um, they were the aliens, and they were coming in, and um, they uh, mm -hmm. wreaked havoc. And then, and then they died at the end because they couldn't survive with, uh, with the bacteria on Earth that they weren't used to. But in our technology wasn't able to do anything to withstand their, their onslaught. You've taken it, and now these are real people. And you've, you know, you've got this, uh, I guess, a hive mind? Is that what it would be kind of like? Well, essentially a hive mind, yeah. Yeah, and but you also put the backstory about what's happening on Mars, why they even came here, what was the thing that sparked them coming here, and it wasn't an invasion. It was it was they were escaping their own scene, and so it was it's the story itself. I mean, it obviously had it's War of the Worlds. It's it's that universe that well started, but it's it's so different now because you get to know at least one of them really well. And then you've got a character, a, a Earthling, you know, uh, Eugene, who you get to know well. But then also other people that are in there are, are real people. You know, you've got uh, uh, the school teacher. You know, she's made an impression upon him. And there's, you know, the people at, at, the, at the circus. So you got real people that are participating, interacting with each other. And you see humanity taking place amidst all this uh, turmoil and confusion. So it's it's way different than just another War of the Worlds story. Well, and that's something I aim for in my stories. Uh, and I'm happy to say readers seem to think that I'm getting it, that I am really trying to make my characters believable and empathetic, that I want you to feel like, yes, these are people, or in this case, Martians, behaving in ways that make sense, that I can feel what yeah. they're feeling. Yeah, and their reaction when they realized that the people they were literally toasting um, were people mm -hmm. and, and not drones. You know, that was, that was really fascinating when I get, got to that part there. Wow, that was an interesting reaction there. On my part, you know, just to when they had that realization, you know, so it definitely made them more real as, even though they're not humans, as, as beings with, you know, sentience and emotion. And it also tended to get rid of the idea that if they're an alien, they're going to be just brutal and treat us like, unfortunately, like we treat, you know, lesser, quote unquote, lesser races or um, other life forms when we go into an area where, you know, what just happened throughout history, even with the UK going into Africa, you know, you had that whole scene there. So it tended to dispel that idea that these were just, they were just monsters, mm -hmm. you know. So, I mean, that was, that was, that was pretty good. Then I think people are going to, once word of mouth gets going on this, so that's the idea of the Kickstarter is to provide that energy to be able to what take reviews or take commentary or yep. whatever people say, this is the best part here, and, and share that with other like-minded science fiction readers? Yep. Get, get a chance for the readers to decide. And if the readers decide it doesn't work, that's valid information. But I want the readers to decide that not 
an editor or not an agent. I want a chance for the readers to decide. And I want the encouragement to keep writing the series. If I can succeed in funding this, then I, I know that, yes, there is an audience. Because I've had this, part, this book essentially written now for three years, maybe more. And I got discouraged because the editors weren't interested and the agent wasn't interested. So I had more story to tell. And I set it on the back burner, even though there are things I'd love to be telling. I felt like, well, it's, it'll never go anywhere. No one will ever know about it. So I should go write other things that people will actually read. Now I've decided yeah, let this, people decide. Yeah, and this, this bags a really important point that especially you listeners pay attention to this part too because I found this and you'll see it more happening in publishing now. The big publishing houses are getting fewer and fewer and even you have, though you have the indies on, um, on books, there's a lot more potential books that people want, are trying to get out there but because of the capacity of a publishing house to produce new product, being it's actually shrinking that they're less willing to go outside of okay this is my formula you don't do this you don't do this you don't do this and this leaves what's left and then you try to narrow that down and i think you've got to have if you if you believe in what you've written as a story then you need to um one, connect up with other individuals that are willing to, if it's a good story, if you've got people that, you've got your beta readers that say, yeah, this is pretty good. You know, I, I think this is a good story. Then you need to have an avenue that you can pursue when you don't have an editor or an agent willing to walk that extra step with you because they've got their constraints. They know they can only sell this many books. There's only this much that they can fill in a pipeline with the publishers that they represent. And I think it's important with what you're doing here, Martin, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've got to be willing to really make that statement and stick to it. If, you, if you're going to say this is a good story, and I, I believe it, to actually prove that you believe in it and do the steps, steps that are necessary. We've got what you've done here with your Kickstarter. And how would other authors approach this strategy? Aiming for this low target that you're fairly confident you can hit. When you do hit it, it causes the Kickstarter algorithms to kick in and start promoting you as a successful campaign. And so that's the basic strategy but the other strategy is the timing that Dean is basically saying, we have reached a watershed point that Brandon has proven that publishing works on Kickstarter. Right. Now, anybody who was paying attention knew that already, but Brandon did it so spectacularly, so visibly, that people who aren't paying attention now have this concept of, hey, there are cool books getting published through Kickstarter. Maybe I should go look for books there. And so Dean is seeing this as a golden opportunity. Although he had the course ready before Brandon, he's saying Brandon has helped it to be even more of an opportunity that people are going to be turning to Kickstarter as an alternative platform for finding their books. So it's a good time for people who can promote their books, who have some social media following, have some network, for these people to start experimenting, trying. And, and 
and especially experiment starting low and growing as opposed to trying to be Brandon overnight because none of us are going to be Brandon overnight. Brandon wasn't Brandon overnight. Correct. So basically the strategy is to ask low and then you can keep on beating your target and setting, what is it called when you have the next targets that are set? Stretch goals where you say, we've done great. Now here's what we'll do if we can raise even this much more. And so, for instance, I have had people ask that if I'm going to have an audio book for this. Now, I, my, my goal for the campaign is $500. Right. I'm willing to announce a stretch goal for an audio book, but it's going to be $15,000. And that would be a pretty impressive first Kickstarter if I reached that number. But I've realistically looked at the production numbers for an audiobook and less than $15,000, I will either fail to produce it, I will produce it and lose my shirt. Audio done well professionally is not cheap. Correct. So that would be your stretch goal if you're going to do, well, you have to do a stretch goal because I would like to think that $500 is going to come and go pretty fast. And, and I am contemplating other stretch goals. Um, I will have probably a $1,000 stretch goal that if we reach that, everybody who backed the book gets another free ebook story. Uh, a story called Meet the Landlord that was published by Bain in, I think, four or five years back in a collection called Little Green Men Attack. So I'll have that as a $1,000 stretch goal. I, I'm considering other stretch goals but you have to be careful that stretch goals, again, it's all about the net. If they cost you too much, you're actually losing by rewarding. Right. Well, even if you, can you have multiple stretch goals? The, the interesting thing that I learned in my first Kickstarter campaign is, is stretch goals are a myth. They don't actually exist. They are not something that Kickstarter defines. They are something that some early Kickstarter creators decided they wanted to keep rewarding people once they passed their funding goal. So they started adding these on. So honestly, there are no particular rules for what a stretch goal is. It's your creativity. Uh, Kevin, on his most recent Kickstarter, a couple of his stretch goals were if we reach such and such a dollar amount, I'm going to host an online uh, Q&A session with all of my backers so they can ask me any question they want to ask. Right. So it's not a product in that case. It's just, it's a chance to interact with the creator. One of the things I have looked at is if I see that I'm reaching a stretch goal, maybe it's a $2,000 mark. I'm still deciding on this, that maybe at that mark, I will say, People are interested enough for this. Maybe I should take them on a tour of all the places where the story took place. Take them to the Hardy family uh, gravesite. Take them to the um, Hardy Pond, which is at the local township hall. Take them to where I did my library research. That this would be a stretch goal that it will take me a weekend of my time, but it would be a way of rewarding that if people are this interested, maybe they want to see the research. Good. Good. Absolutely. All right. So basically then with, with, and this is for the um, aspiring author that's listening to this podcast, the significance of this, this, this provides now another viable 
provided you've got your, your following, another viable means of, of getting a book produced and covering whatever cost, be that incidental or um, even the, the cost of, of hiring an editor, proofreader, whatever you need to do, or even getting the first thousand books printed to make them available. This is, this is a viable tool, which is becoming more and more an accepted fashion of publishing. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty amazing. And, and so finding about Kickstarter, is it just you go to a YouTube tutorial, you just go to Kickstarter and it gives you a whole, this is how you do it? Or how, how does a person actually find out how to do a Kickstarter? Or do they do that and then go and watch this um, uh, Dean Wesley Smith video that he did so that they can put the two plus two to actually get um, a proper sum of four? Those are two of the things I would do, and I will try to, after the interview, I'll send you the links for both of those so you can offer them out to people watching this. Okay. Um, those, those are two of the things I would do. Dean, in his course, specifically says the first thing he teaches everybody is go go read some Kickstarter campaigns, back some campaigns, look at the ones that work for you, look at the ones that are doing things that you think, hey... This looks like something cool, and I think this would work, so I want to try this. Um, I will be honest and do a call-out to my friend Ramon Terrell, who is both a wonderful uh, author and also a talented actor who's been in a couple of things that I've seen. I'm not sure how widely they've been seen. But Ramon launched his Kickstarter uh, just about a month ago now, and I've been watching how he's been structuring his rewards, and he has been really, really successful in his. So I'm like, okay, can I learn from Ramon? There's a community of people out there, so you can learn from them. There are Facebook groups where, where Kickstarter authors share information and give each other feedback and so on. It's becoming a community, not just an outlet. Right. Well, that's pretty, uh, that's very interesting and We've not discussed this before in this podcast, so I think this is uh, going to be very good for for people who have been listening to this podcast for different ideas and, like I said at the outset, you know, tips and inspiration. All right, so now I'm going to bridge over here um, to just you as an author, your growth as an author. Uh, so how did that go? I know we talked about this before in, in previous podcasts, but I just want to quickly cover that and bring us up to when, when you came out to Hollywood as the win. Um, brought you here for Rise of Future Arm 31. So a little bit of your um, growth as an author and then how you're able to juggle both programming and writing. Yeah. Well, I've been a storyteller of some sort or another apparently my whole life. I don't have real strong memories going back to when I was really young. But my mom used to tell me that I told stories about imaginary friends. One of my earliest memories, you mentioned that in the introduction, was my brother's typewriter, where I could type real books on that thing. <laughs> so I've been doing the writing all my life, and I've been doing the giving up because I didn't have the, the persistence in the face of rejection. And it took me until I was 47 years old to get past that and start accepting that rejection is part of the process. Not long after that, I started having good results, including finalists, and eventually winning in Writers of the Future. So it took me just the maturity for four and a half decades of it to finally accept that this stuff is hard and you don't give up. 
But then it was a game changer at Writers of the Future because all of a sudden my network expanded to include all of you wonderful supportive people at Author Services and Galaxy Press and all these supportive judges who would give me advice on things and cheer me on in my career and sometimes give me opportunities where, hey, could you write a story for this? But one of the most effective things, honestly, and I didn't know it at the time, but it was that 24-hour story. Because that 24-hour story exercise, for, for people who aren't familiar with it, it's basically in the workshop, you're given a random item from Tim Powers's bag of junk. You're taken to look through and do random library research, and you talk to a random person, and you use these story seeds to tell a story in 24 hours. Which, if you're a new author, I have to tell you, I know where you're at. I know how intimidating that sounds. I know how absolutely terrifying it might sound that you have to be an extrovert to go talk to people, and then you have to write a whole story in a day. Right, right. You learn. It becomes easier. I am now at a point where I can reliably turn out 3,000 plus words an hour for as many words as I sit down and produce them. If I am on my treadmill, it may be 4,000 words an hour. If I'm just sitting in my chair, it might be 5,000 words an hour. Um, that's a pretty rare one, but I have done 5,000 word hours. And I can do it for as long as I want because that exercise taught me to just get out of my own way and let my brain tell the story. And it didn't feel like I was learning anything at the time, but my 24-hour story went on to be named one of the year's best uh, adventure, military and adventure science fiction stories for that year. So it, it broke me past the barrier of, I can't do this, and put me in the mood of, I can do this if I sit down and just make myself do it. If I'm a professional, not a dabbler. Right. So... On the on the workshop or any aspect of Rise of the Future, you you obviously you have you were taught by um, Tim Powers and uh, the late Dave Farland, and then all the guest judges that go in there. But there's also several essays in the um, there's a book of essays by um, L. Ron Hubbard that he wrote for aspiring writers. Any particular part of that or any essay that more rings true to you or that helped you on your on your journey? Actually, I'm, I've got a copy of the book right here um, <laughs> because they are great practical essays on the profession of writing, of approaching writing as not just a craft or an art, but also as a job you have to get done. Um, we had at this year's workshop, there was a visit to the author services building and there were some biographical sketches of Mr. Hubbard, which also taught touched on a lot of the same topics. And there was a lot there that was such practical advice about stop whining, do it. And if it's not good enough, do it better next time. But I think relevant to my career especially is the one he did, and this was, I think, in, reprinted in volume 33, on research. Search for research? The search for research. Yeah. That that, that one just, it described, and, and here... I'm glad to have him teaching it, but it's more or less where I had already reached in my career early on of 
if you research, you will find stories. Right. They may not even be the stories you are necessarily starting out looking for, but that's exactly the lesson he teaches is one writer was complaining about, I'm not going to do all that research for a penny and a half per word. And Mr. Hubbard goes out and does tons of research and no story, no story, no story, no story sells a story. Then another story built on that research. Then another story built on that research. And then another. And these stories built on that research are starting to mount into the hundreds of dollars in 1940 dollars. Right. Because research always sticks in your brain and becomes something you can use later. It's never wasted. And, and, and going all the way back to ULA, this is essentially how ULA came to be what it is. Is... I said, I'm going to research this time period and see where Martians fit into this time period. And the entire structure of the story from there is the research, the things I learned about the Hardy family, the things I learned about the local, local, uh, local communities that don't even exist in my type lifeline. They've gone away. All these things I've learned along the way became the story. I didn't sit down to have a story. I sit down to have, how am I going to make this research work with Martians? And so that is a very practical essay on going out and finding information and fi making stories out of it. And he's, he, he would look at me and say that I'm pretty much a sloth, lazy when it comes to writing. He said the same thing about himself. He said about all writers, we don't want to do the work. Well, he was doing work in his time period. First of all, he was a younger man than I am today. Second of all, writing was his full-time job. So his form of research might include going out and working in a logging camp for three months to understand logging. I don't have that luxury. But his kind of research would also be go spend a weekend in the library, which is exactly what I did for Ula. But I'm also blessed with something that he didn't have in his day, which is the internet. Right. Where I can do an awful lot of my research, sitting in my bed, petting my cats, having a nice meal, and going out and finding what the internet can lead me to. And I can only imagine the sort of research he would do with that tool available. Yeah, I mean, at that time, he was, uh, he did a lot of the, uh, all of his Orient adventure fiction, but he actually traveled to China and Mongolia and various places over there. So he lived that, he lived that life. So he was able to add that realism. He was, he went to, um, I mean, he traveled all over the world. He was at that time, very, very unusual that anybody had that much travel in them. So you're able to travel now and experience these things with the internet that you couldn't, that wasn't possible back then. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that there is a real power in his approach. I just don't have the flexibility to go travel to China for three months. Right. I mean, he, the one advantage you do have from actually being there and doing it versus seeing it on a National Geographic show, which has got beautiful cinematography, is meeting the people, getting to know what they're like, who are they. You know, that's, that's something that a lot of uh, actors, when we created our audiobooks, uh, one of the complaints that actors frequently have is the um, when they have to be, be the various characters that authors have written and they're just unreal, they're not real. And 
because of his worldly travels, he was able to write people in their exact personas. And so when we recorded like Battlefield Earth or Mission Earth, where we had hundreds of actors, we even got actors who were from the countries that were referenced like in Mission Earth. And they said, this is exactly what a nurse over in this country is like, you know? So he was able to really get the voice, which being there and meeting the people is the only thing that can actually give you that, that ability to do. But like what you did with your book, you just did here with Ula, you do have the voice. I mean, you've definitely got that Midwestern, that, that's you. You, know, you are Midwestern, and you just turned it back a century and were able to get uh, what the people were like there. But you have a basic feel for the Midwest that you're able to have put into your book that made that realistic. And um, I think that that's important for a good storyteller to, to have that that sense of realism of the people themselves, not just the locale of what, what it looked like and the, that the roads are the right name and the hills in the, in the right place yep. and that type of stuff. And, and so I think he, he wrote a really, really important piece there on the value of research and opening up your mind to research will pay off. Yeah, good. And it's absolutely true. Definitely was true for him and your your expounding on that. Um, it just, it makes it, it enables a story, especially if you have something grounded in, in real life, it, it makes it plausible. You've got to have that. Mm-hmm. So now on um, you juggling your life then as a, uh, as a programmer and a, as an author. So I know you wrote this one book called On Being a Dictator. So how much does that play in dictating your stories as compared to just uh, sitting on a typewriter and writing? For me, not for everybody, but for me, it's a game changer. Uh, For Writers of the Future, Judge Kevin J. Anderson, who co-wrote that book with me, Kevin Kevin wrote more of it than I did, to be honest. For Kevin, it's a game changer. But for Kevin, he's a full-time writer, so for him, the benefits are there. But for me, it's a very specific benefit that it lets me turn my daily commute for the day job into writing time. It lets me take an hour travel in the morning and an hour in the evening and turn them into two hours of dictation, which on a bad day, I get 25 words per minute. On a really good day, I have been known to get 60. I have one known case of getting a hundred words per minute on that 50 minute drive. And that story went on to get nominated for a nebula. So wow, it gives me productive time that I otherwise wouldn't have with my day job, but I'm starting to think it does more than that. I think I'm getting better dialogue out of it because you always hear people say, how do you improve your dialogue? Well, read it aloud and hear how it sounds. I am, quote-unquote, reading it aloud as I'm dictating it. I am essentially becoming a method actor. I become that character, and I speak in the voice of that character, and I hear praise for my dialogue being very natural. And this, I think, because if it were unnatural, which can happen to us sometimes when we're writing dialogue and we will write things that no human would ever say, We don't notice how clumsy it is. But when I'm speaking it, if it's clumsy, I stop and dictate it again. So I think it's improving my my dialogue. 
also it's giving me a cadence. I get up in the morning, drive to work, dictate an hour. Come home, dictate an hour. Next day, drive to work, drive home, hour, an hour. So I get a cadence here. It's training my brain that this is the thing you do. I've actually, I took a Sharpie and wrote on my steering wheel of my Jeep. Is the recorder on? To remind myself, if I am behind this wheel and I'm not talking to you, I should be dictating. It trains my brain for that. And also, again, as a cadence, it keeps me producing on a regular basis, which means I'm keeping the story in my head. I'm not having long gaps to say, oh, woe was me. I don't know where the story goes next. No, it it's tomorrow morning. I have to drive to work. So tomorrow morning, I need to be dictating on Martian Song Book 2. And I know exactly where I left off on that story. And tomorrow morning, I have to pick back up on that. And I'd better be ready to go. Right. Well, that's, that's actually very good advice on that. And whether it's a dictator, like you said, for yourself on your commute, or an author just getting that time slot put in and just sticking to it. So for you, like having that, the regimen in of this is my writing time is important. Yep. And just keeping that in. And if you keep that on a very good regular basis, you can keep the story in your head. Right. The more story you can keep in your head at once, the more consistent you're going to be. Right. Good. That makes sense. Now, I'm always looking for tips and suggestions. And one of the things I also look for is moments where you wanted to throw in the towel with writing, but somehow persisted and overcame that barrier. Because sometimes people will fixate on the barriers and the stops, and they lose track of the purpose. So do you have any particular point where you're ready to say, that's it, I'm going to uh, just stick with programming and not go back to my writing, or um, and then how you overcame that? Uh, how many do I want to recount from age 13? <laughs> okay, let, let me tell you the last one. Okay. The absolute last one, because it makes you look good. All right. But it's true. Okay. The last one was after I'd been really trying, seriously trying after all these years, seriously trying. I actually stuck with it for six months, six whole months. And there are writers out there right now ready to kill me because six months is barely trying. But for me, this felt like I've really given it my all. I am going to, on January 1st, I'm going to give up and go write some Windows phone games because I know how to do that. But on December 31st, I got a rejection back on a story I'd sent off to Asimov's. And it was not yet January 1st. My official give-up date was the 1st. So I had to send it out. And it's like, where do I send this on a Saturday on the last day of the year in December? And I go through Duotrope looking for markets. And there's this, this contest that, that I don't know anything hardly about it except Dean raves about it, Chris raves about it, Larry raves about it, Jerry raves about it. All these people think Writers of the Future is this really important contest that I should be entering. So I said, okay, I got nothing to lose because I'm done. Tomorrow morning, I am done. I'm, I'm giving up writing for life. So I sent out the story. And next day, I started learning Windows ga phone game programming. 
And by March, I had made $50 in games that I'd written. And it was fun. It was stuff I was interested in. It was no big shakes, but $50, considering I wrote my first line of game code three months earlier, two months earlier, really. Nothing to sneeze at. And then I get a call from Joni, from Writers of the Future, which I literally had forgotten I had submitted to, telling me that my story is a finalist. I'm like, what's a finalist? I had no clue. I knew that little about the contest. She said, oh, well, you're one of eight that are potentially going to be winners for the quarter. There's going to be three of them. It's going to take about a month for us to know, but I just thought you ought to know that, that you were in the top eight for thousands. I'm like, okay, now I went out and did some research. Now I went out and read up on the contest. Now I read uh, Brad Torgerson's uh, essay on how much he got out of winning the contest and how much he learned and the connections he made. So when Joni called me a month later, I'm like, yeah, I want to win this thing that I'd never heard of four months ago. And I didn't. Nope, you weren't one of the top three. You were only one of the top eight. And then she said, but Jerry Purnell loved your story and he thought it should have won. And my jaw just hits the, the, the floor because I've been a fan of Jerry, especially in partnership with Larry for practically my adult reading life. I've been reading their stuff. And I'm like, Jerry thinks I can do this? <laughs> and that's when I realized that my mistake was giving up, was taking rejection as failure. And that was literally the day that I gave up giving up. And I have no giving up stories to tell after that day because I decided that so... They don't want the story. Send it somewhere else. Send them another one. It doesn't matter. It took, I want to say, 14 entries. It might have been 13 entries before I actually won Writers of the Future. But I didn't care at that point because most of those stories, I could self-publish them if I wanted. I could send them somewhere else. It didn't have to be all or nothing. It was keep trying. And that is my lesson now, especially to young writers, because it took me more than 40 years to learn this lesson. I want to tell the young writers that getting rejected doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means that story didn't work for that editor for that market. Keep trying. And for that month. And for that month, yes. That's, that's a great story, and that's great advice, too, because it's— People aren't thinking outside of their their world when it comes to that. It's like for them, this is my story. It's been rejected. Therefore, I'm rejected. Therefore, I'm done. And that's not it at all. There are so many other cir extenuating circumstances that can be going on all the way to the point it could be an awesome story and any other time period that editor may have purchased it, but they just bought a story like that for that current issue of the, of the magazine or for the book or just had one and it's not due for another six months to have that type of story in their in their magazine or the next year's book. There's all types of things other than the fact of you're rejected. And some people, you know, some editors don't have enough time or resources to sit down and write long involved, you know, thanks for trying, I'm sorry we couldn't take it. You know, they just, you know, some of these guys are just seriously swamped. Mm -hmm. And this gets back to how my productivity has increased thanks to the 24-hour story, thanks to learning to dictate. 
I now can produce, if I'm not lazy, because again, writers can be lazy, but if I'm not lazy, I now can produce material so fast that my investment in any one story of, oh no, if this story doesn't succeed, it's the end of my writing career, is completely gone. Because I'm just writing the next story already. That yes, I love that story, I put my best effort into it, and once it's out in the world, I go on to the next one. If I get an, a rejection back, I, I allow myself, I call it the five-minute rant. For five minutes, I'm going to be upset that story didn't, didn't sell, and then send it to the next market. If, on the other hand, it sells, I give myself five minutes of happy dance and move on to the next story. That productivity that I've gotten out of dictation has changed my attitude that every story is still important, but no story is life or death anymore. That's really good. That makes that makes very good sense on that. And that's something that also goes back to the name a writer writes. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're getting close now to, uh, to the end of this uh, interview. So anything else that I didn't ask that you'd like to bring up? Nothing is coming to mind. I hope people will take a look at my Kickstarter. It's actually in pre-launch right now as I speak. It will be fully launched by the time you air this. Right. So if you go to Kickstarter and search under publishing for ULA, U-L-L-A, I pretty much guarantee it's going to be the only ULA on Kickstarter. <laughs> I'm sure you're right on that. So... I didn't know what to expect when I when you sent me the book to read because I always like to read the you know books if I'm speaking with an author, but um, you know once I got into it, meaning I'm, I read so many kinds of books right now because of all the different authors I interview. Once I got into it, it's okay, good. This is a different mindset now. It was just I was fascinated. Mostly, I was fascinated with the history that you wove into it that made it. If I hadn't have already been familiar with War of the Worlds, I wouldn't have known this is War of the Worlds. Mm -hmm. and, and it diverges farther as we get into the later books because now I have to deal with a world where London has been destroyed. There's a fairly good chance, I haven't decided yet, but there's a fairly good chance they have a new king. They almost certainly have a new parliament. And I decided that a certain... North Country backbencher might have been visiting his constituents at that time and therefore might have survived and might be helping to rebuild the, the, the British Empire now in the aftermath of Martian invasion, a gentleman by the name of Churchill. All right. Who was rather famous for, in our timeline, for taking vicious war back to the people who attacked his country. Right. And so that's going to be coming around book three of Churchill Wants Blood. And that's a whole different timeline, but it's the same historical personality, the same perspectives on things. That I can take these this altered history now and take the existing personalities that we know from our history and say, how do they react to a world that has discovered that Martians exist? Well, it's definitely something that people are going to have to uh, read volume one before they get to volume three. And volume one is definitely worth a read. 
So now, how can people find you? Because um, this isn't obviously the only book. There's going to be a lot of other, of other stuff that they can read. Um, so how does somebody find you if you want to find out more about you and your other novels that you've written? Simplest way is my website, which is shoemaker.space. Good. And then you're obviously... Just dot .space, not dot .space .com, not dot .space .org. When, you hit, when, you, when you've typed the letter E, you're done. Good. So shoemaker.space is yep. your domain name. Good. Yep. And then obviously you're going to be on, found on Amazon and people can find you in Goodreads. Yep. And, if you, and if you go to risefuture.com and type in Shoemaker, you're going to find his uh, story in there as well that um, he won with back in volume 31. And I definitely recommend that as well, in my humble opinion. So uh, it's been great speaking with you, Martin, and, and I'm glad we're able to do this. And hopefully this, uh, this helps to make your Kickstarter a, a smashing success. Um, I just want nothing but uh, success for you. You're just you're a great author, a great person, and I'm hoping to see much more coming from you in the years to come. I appreciate that. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere else via Amazon.com. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Martin. Thank you.